running the business from day one as you are the investor will help you to make decisions along the way that will serve your exit in the future. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Sven Milder, a serial entrepreneur who has built, purchased, and sold multiple companies throughout Europe and Southeast Asia. Sven understands how to raise capital, how to leverage low-cost workforces, and how to use technology to improve efficiencies and profitability in any business he's involved in. Sven shares how he thinks about fundraising for startups, why he's now buying profitable companies as platforms for growth using technology and M&A, and finally, how every entrepreneur should be building a company with an exit in mind from day one. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sven Milder. Sven, thank you so much for being here. I'm really fired up to talk to you. One, because you know, you've lived essentially all over the world, Southeast Asia, born in Amsterdam, and you've been a founder, you've built companies, you've sold companies, you've bought companies, just been in and around M&A and fundraising. I know our listeners are going to have a ton of fun with this, certainly get some lessons. And I don't know if you know this, but Mark Cuban had this spot this morning and I bumped him because I knew you were available. So thank you for being here. Awesome. 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 We'll say hi to Mark. (laughs) (laughs) I will if he allows that. (laughs) So your eclectic entrepreneurial background, really admirable. Maybe you could start with growing up in Amsterdam and, you know, what brought you virtually around the world, building companies, selling companies, everything that you do. Maybe start from the beginning for us. Yeah. So, yeah, perfect. So, in generally, uh, thank you very, very much for having me. I would love to share my insights today, uh, and I hope that the, those that are listening in, they will get some golden nuggets to avoid mistakes or to otherwise get some get some inspiration along the way. I would say it's always a super exciting journey. Yes, maybe my accent is revealing it. I'm from I'm from the Netherlands. How hard we try, we keep on bumping into the accent. So I will never never get rid of that again. Since the last 10 years, I'm living here in Asia. I'm originally from the Netherlands. To just kick things off in a good way, I have been um, a little bit naughty in my in my childhood. I came from a little small town where there was nothing fun really to do. And I thought like, oh, you know what? Let's go to Amsterdam to save my ass a little bit rather than being with all of the punk in the city in the small little villages, right? Because the only thing <laughs> that you do then is hang on the streets in the night and that's nothing really comes well from it, you know. So I went to Amsterdam to just find a little bit more peace, to have more city life around me. And with city life around you, you will meet a lot of people. You get exposed to new technologies. And there was my entrepreneurial mind actually already fired up. So in my early stages, I started organizing a lot of dance events. I was very active in connecting people, organizing little dinners to you know, exchange information or ideas, brainstorm nights. And at a certain moment, as I was, um, you know, pretty, pretty active in Amsterdam, night scene, lifestyle scene, Uber was launching. Uber was launching a second city in Amsterdam. And I thought like, wow, this is super cool. And I got so fascinated with this whole technology of, at that moment still special, you hit the button and, and the cap comes 
you know, in front of your door, you order water. So all, all nice, all cool. But it was at the same time that I was also having a furniture company, a furniture online store in, in the Netherlands. And while being fascinated as a country uh, launcher of Uber, I thought like, okay, what else can I do with it? But that was as well the same time that I needed to go back and forth to Asia. Uh, and actually a long story short, when I was doing these furniture business, which was super fun to do, of course, I quickly found out, shit, carrying all of those sofas around is not what I would like to do. You know, I should do something with tech. So knowing what I knew from Uber, I actually collected a group of people together in Asia to build a uh, last mile delivery service that I had originally the plan to bring back to the Netherlands. So while I was in Asia, while I was in China waiting for all of my furniture to be done, I had my development team there because, of course, for low cost development to to have something else on my mind. And where the shit actually hit the fan is that while I was in Asia, while I was in China, I lived as well in Hong Kong. And I was already talking with Brian about that. I mean, it has Hong Kong has like as a single guy, a very dangerous, uh, sharp little edge that if you're single in Hong Kong, your weekend starts on Monday and your weekend ends on Monday. Uh, and, that, and that's not a good thing. So very quickly, I went to Bali, Indonesia, with my developer team to actually further develop the whole product to keep myself away from all of the bus. And then one night I was dancing and I bumped into this nice girl at that moment and I fall head over heels. And she said like, hey, you know what? Why don't you just launch your last mile delivery service in, in Indonesia, in Jakarta? And of course, as, as much as I, I was in love, I thought like, okay, you know what you do? You go back to the Netherlands right now where you know things are pretty shit or you just jump into the depth and follow your love into a city where you don't know anyone, you don't know any investor, you don't have any friends and you just, you know, I would almost say you just follow your your, your drive as a guy to think, okay, where's the woman? I will go there, right? So that's, yeah. what, that's what I did. I sold my first company, which is the furniture company that I was actually running in, in China, and I started doing my last mile delivery company uh, in Jakarta. And what makes it a very interesting ride for me is because at that moment, I didn't know shit how to raise capital. I didn't know mm-hmm. anyone in, in that specific place. And I found out there very quickly, after building the product and started pitching it to investors, that if I don't change my way of raising capital, I would not go anywhere, right? Uh, and it was at the same time where I actually spent all of my money trying to pitch to investors up to the point that my girlfriend actually that brought me there left me, which is eventually a good thing because she was not really uh, clear in her mind in that sense. Um, <laughs> and I was rock bottom sitting on the sofa thinking like, okay, I have this product. I'm in a, in a city where I don't know anyone. What am I going to do? And then my pivot point was literally when I read the, the book of Neil Strauss, The Game. And uh, while I was reading The Game, looking for new tactics for a girlfriend, you know, uh, <laughs> I thought like, wow, I'm reading The Game, which is a book for those that don't know about how to seduce a woman. I literally read through it and I saw the comparison between dating a woman and raising capital. And then everything started <laughs> clicking for me. And seriously, three weeks later, I raised my first $600,000. I uh, The business, almost to 900 people, 
uh, raised a lot of money from venture capitalists, and the rest is actually history. I, I noticed that it's a long introduction, but I just wanted to make sure to touch on some pivotal moments that sometimes luck and being desperate. Sven, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing it all. I, just to recap, right? So you start out in Amsterdam and you're seeing too much of the party scene and you got to figure out your life. So you have a furniture business that is manufactured in China. So you go over to China and then you meet a woman who brings you to Jakarta. You discover a new business of last mile delivery using technology. So you sell the furniture business your girlfriend leaves you, and then you realize, hey, there's a better way to raise capital, which is similar to how you were meeting women. This is, this is a phenomenal story, right? So um, could we back up just a quick second? Because we really like to educate around M&A, and, and the fundraising part is, is awesome. I want to get to that. You sold that first business. How easy was it to sell the furniture business for you? Did you have a buyer in hand? Like, how did how did that work? Yeah, well, it was the most simple sell uh, all time because I just sold it to my co-founder, right? Perfect. So perfect. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's the easy way. And it was a very easy deal because I didn't want to go back to Amsterdam anymore. The shares had a certain price. The due diligence was very clear because we run the business. He was knee down in the business and really loved it. And we created a plan around it that, you know, he should pay me back uh, X amount of money. I think it was like in 18 months or something. And I had, of course, the luck that I didn't need the money so badly because I was in Asia where the costs are cheaper. So I could wait a little bit. Oh, that's great. Like, I really think that there's a big lesson in that. I've been through that as well, where we sold half of a business and my co-founder wanted to run the other half. And, and so I just said, OK, I'll keep the equity and move on. And as entrepreneurs, right, we're driven by, you know, what is that thing that we're super passionate about? And you are clearly seeing an opportunity, sell the shares, get a little capital for yourself and do the thing that you are really excited about, which you built to how many employees did you end up with? Uh, in Jakarta? Yeah, wow. uh, Indonesia. Right. So that you yeah. built, you built something substantial. Did you end up exiting that business? Do you still run it today? I exited that business. On a, okay. So, to, to just stay short on the point, so it stays also exciting yep. for everyone. We raised also um, $8 million in venture capital, uh, yep. which is in, in Asia, of course, the dollar brings you pretty far. It was a last mile delivery service, which means we had 30 offices. Uh, we had drivers on motorbikes delivering packages everywhere. And one of the things that happened in that specific company is that because we were pretty capital heavy, as we had like a lot of uh, a lot of people, of course, on the, on the paycheck. We had a corporate investor at that time in, and the corporate investor didn't pay his investments in time. Mm. Let's call it like that. And therefore, we got stretched for three months before they actually dumped the money in the business, which means that the business was pretty much on the fire uh, yeah. for a long while. And I was actually in that whole period. Imagine that you cannot pay your your salary to 900 people for three months straight while you're leading a company that was uh, pretty horrible so that yeah that, that brought me as a person i think uh, down to the ground uh, so i exited that business on a personal level as a ceo but yeah. in that period while i exited on a personal level uh, we created another business which was a first mile business under our holding company 
and we sold that to another group of investors. I think you know there's a great lesson in in raising capital there that you know maybe you can expound on. But you know I've raised a lot of money. I see other founders raise a lot of capital, and I think one of the the, the trickiest or maybe worst types of investors to take on is somebody that's going to drip capital into you at particular times, right? $250,000 a month or something every six months. And for entrepreneurs, we need to have a long-term game plan. You might be thinking six months and 18 months out, but if you don't know that you have that capital to spend 100% for sure, you can get yourself in some really tricky situations like not being able to make payroll, right? Or, or pay your vendors for like, vital things for the business. So I really just encourage people as they're raising capital to not take capital from somebody that says, oh yeah, I'll give you a million dollars, but I'm going to give it to you in $100,000 chunks over time. That does not work. Okay. So you, you realize, okay, you got in tight situation, but you've got in the back of your mind, like all of us entrepreneurs do, what is the next business? And it's born out of this, you know, big business that you built. So can you tell me a little bit about that first mile delivery business? Yeah, before we jump into that, I want to quickly give an extra comment on what you're saying. I, I don't sure. necessarily I don't necessarily think it's bad to accept cash in a drip, you know. I think uh, if you accept cash in a drip, which means typically could be milestone based or every 3 or 6 months, 3 months definitely too short. But if you make great agreements with investors that if they currently invest, let's say, $2 million, right, and they want to spread these $2 million over 12 months, that should cost the investor money, right? I mean, they cannot say, oh, we invest a $1 million or $2 million for valuation X and then try to be super mm-hmm. chill and relaxed by giving you money every two, three months. I would say, like, okay, if you give me money now every two, three months, that means that the next time you're giving me money, you're jumping in another valuation, because if you give me cash right now, I'm able to deliver more milestones. My company's worth more, so your second drip will give me less dilution. In that sense, it can work. It can work pretty well. Of course, it depends a little bit how cash-heavy your business in general is. And to add on to that, mm-hmm. what I share a lot with my clients that are, I'm working with, sometimes it's just not always the best idea to accept venture capital in the first place, right? Because it's, Correct. It's, Correct. it's like martial arts on high level. And if you fuck up, then the investor is always the one that laughs. Uh, sorry, the VC is always the one that uh, has the most fun in the end, right? And not, mm-hmm. and not specifically the founder. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that's a great point. Um, I try to encourage founders who I'm investing in you know, they say you're always fundraising, but you got to be running your business. And so when I think of kind of drip investors who are going to be looking at metrics, you know, every three months or every quarter, you know, you're, you're constantly in fundraising mode and thinking a little more short term than long term. And it really doesn't leave room for mistakes, right? So you're going to make mistakes along the way. And so buying yourself, you know, 18 month runway two year runway, you know, is my preferred way of doing it. But, you know, I'm coming from kind of the venture capital background, more traditional 
startup fundraising. And I think you're proposing an alternative to that. And so I really do like the idea that you're understanding your value at different points in time and not giving that valuation or taking on that dilution all from the beginning. It's definitely you know an interesting tactic. And I love alternatives to venture capital, right? Because we're not all building businesses that are truly meant for venture. So I appreciate you giving that that as an option. Well, to to pay f- uh, forward on that, which also ties into most probably your next question, right? After doing almost two hundred fifty million dollars in transactions in 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 the last seven years, mm-hmm. uh, I was pretty bullish on the venture capital market. I believe that venture capital is not for everyone, and it's very much about your storytelling and your and your you know you're designing the future, and people are betting on that. What I believe is a better option for those that want to keep both doors open is to, if you have a business, first thing what you want to do is make sure that you attract retail investors in, in the first place, because the retail investor keeps your door open to or accept venture capital later on, or mm-hmm. if your business doesn't really turn out that successful, you can still you know, build the business accordingly and then hopefully go for an exit later on. And many founders need to understand that if you're going in the venture capital route, there's actually only uh, two ways out, or you become a failure, not necessarily on the personal level, but more on a business level. And the VC is very well protected that you as a founder most likely don't have a lot of money left after the exit because of all of the liquidation preferences. And then on the other side, you can be a success. And I mean, it's very funny, but if you are growing a business to, let's say, 100 million or 150 million, by that time, by the time you're exiting, I personally believe you could better sell your business in a B round with less stress as a founder and keep more of your money rather than waiting and waiting and waiting. So what I really like to advise the founder in this case, perhaps not go the venture capital route, but buy an existing business instead that has already cash flow. And that's what I'm doing currently. That has already the cash flow. Digitize it as if it's a, a venture capital DNA kind of business, then once you have that business really Mm -hmm. under control and you have the profit, then go to a VC and then you're the bad motherfucker at the table that actually decides on the rules rather than the the VC decides on your rules, right? Because there's a difference if you don't have profit or you do have profit in terms of the deals and arrangement that you make with the investor. Oh, it's great insight. Absolutely. You know, I'm a huge proponent of founders taking stock of what they really, really love doing and what their skill set is within a company. And if that means that, hey, I could go out and raise a Series B, dilute myself and have to grow a business to the $100 million enterprise value or revenue or whatever the metric is, you know, if it's not in your DNA, it's not what you're passionate about, it's not your skill set you could be far better off exiting where you own the majority of the company, you own a lot of control and selling your company, you know, the call it 20 to $50 million uh, range. And what I love about that is, you know, we're entrepreneurs in this as a career path. We're going to do it multiple times and putting a win on the board like that, changing your, your financial profile it just makes the next one so much easier, right? And so you're doing it over and over and over. So I love that piece of advice. 
I think being an entrepreneur via acquisition, right? So you're going out and buying a company that cash flows. I'd love to get your take on that. You're going to have to raise some capital, right? You can raise some debt, but you've got to finance those purchases. And I think that's fascinating for you know our listeners to think about their next business. Should it be something that they go out and, and purchase, right? And then when they go to really grow, like you said, I think you're enabling it via technology is, is certainly one path. When you go to grow that business, now you're really mo- looking at growth capital, right? And that's a different stage of like private equity or venture capital. Can you talk a little bit more about that buying companies that are cash flowing? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'm very close in closing a transaction at the moment, actually, which means that we're in the last last mile of the of, of, of the due diligence, but we, we more or less already decide on everything. What is the strategy there, right? So let me first share. I wanted to buy a business that was cash flow fitting from day one, right? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to have a business that has a B2B component. Because I know in the back of my mind, if I know, if I want to have financing, B2B always does better, right? There's recurring revenue. Also, if your goal is to sell the business later on, when you buy a B2B business with recurring revenue, your EBITDA multiples look completely different. So my benchmark was, okay, I want to have a a B2B business. It needs to have recurring revenue. I want something that's old and that is a necessity whenever, wherever. So I landed up into a ISP business, which stands for an internet service provider. Sure. And this internet service provider is owning close to around 250 kilometers of fiber optic network. They do already a lot of uh, of revenue with, with crazy 83% gross profit margins. Their capacity can grow 10 times on the current network, what they're doing. And they're literally running their business with a lot of respect for the current owner, if he ever listens to this. They run the business very well, but I think with all of the technology out there currently and rebranding and repackaging it and making sure that the automation in the back office is done very well, yeah, you you can just grow this ridiculously fast. So. Yep. It's not that I bought the business for the specific reason to own one. No, we buy this business actually as a platform business, and we already have six different targets of other companies mm-hmm. that we actually want to stack, right? So we will grow oh, this great. business through acquisition, and we grow this business through actually doing external marketing and all the bells and whistles to to fast-track that growth. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it, it sounds like the private equity playbook, you're playing like a micro PE. And I'm sure you're thinking about how you grow that business, but all of that automation and technology you're going to bring to the table is going to increase the profitability right, of the business, making just making it more efficient. And when you have that efficiency as a base, now you can go out and buy similar businesses, buy the customer lists, whatever it is to add to that platform. I mean, it's a it's a tried and true playbook. It takes real experience and expertise that you clearly have. So I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I think about that for ourselves as well. I think it'd be a really interesting chapter in in the entrepreneurial journey. So, like, obviously, I wish you a ton of success on that. You know, Sven, I want to be kind of respectful of your time. I love that. You know, we have you on as very much an international entrepreneur. 
you know, I've had some personal mm-hmm. experience with that, but we haven't had many guests like this. And so you've pointed out a lot of things that, you know, how things can be less expensive building companies in Asia. Maybe the solutions end up being slightly different than what we see, you know, in North America. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with, like words of wisdom around the companies that you've exited, how you've built companies, how you fundraised? Because I think fundraising actually is one of your kind of true talents. And any other words of wisdom that you want to give to our listeners or any other stories you want to touch on? Yes, absolutely. So I think the main thing that I would like to give away to everyone is that when you plan to build a business for sale right or when you plan to really build the business and and everybody's thinking like oh the exit oh that will happen later on in three years when i'm profitable right Mm -hmm. but i think that every entrepreneur that starts to build their business uh, needs to wear a few caps right i always like to say you are a shareholder which means you're an equity holder in your own business then maybe you're as well the ceo in the business but Running the business from day one as you are the investor will help you to make decisions along the way that will serve your exit in the future. If you are too easy when you raise capital to accept all kinds of complicated deal terms in the start, or you're too easy when when it comes to accepting ridiculous valuations, or and with ridiculous, I don't mean too low, but actually too high, uh, then you price yourself out of the market, right? So those that are building, you should really build in mind like, okay, if I'm going to sell my business, who will be the potential buyer and and what and what will they buy? A great example is I was working together with a um, a coffee business. Uh, they they were doing a roastery, a wholesale, uh, shops, and online retail, right? So there were actually four different business units. And they literally had all of these four business units under one entity. And if you mm-hmm. look, if you would look at it from an entrepreneurial point of view, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's easy and it saves cost. But if you would then put on your investor cap, that doesn't make any sense in terms of risk or in terms of um, saving on taxes or in terms of making sure that your business actually has a higher valuation. So the first thing that we actually did with that business is to split each of the units, let's say, the coffee roastery, the coffee wholesale, the coffee shops, and later on as well, the franchising and all different entities. And yes, it's a little bit more cash in the start, but what you will see is that you can, of course, play the tax the textbook, but each individual entity becomes actually, has more value. And by doing that, you can raise capital on one entity and therefore have less dilution on holding level instead of you put everything on one big chunk, right? If mm-hmm. that makes sense. So the reason why I wanted to bring this, this example forward is that don't only think about moving the business forward, but think about if I'm the investor right now, how can I really create value in the services that I'm offering on a equity or a holding structure level that, that saves you a lot of trouble in the, in the future? Yeah, I think you started that with having the exit in mind when you're building a company or what you're thinking about building. What is somebody going to purchase? And so when you are able to separate out the assets of a business, those assets can be become attractive to different buyer sets, right? So it's not just that you might be able to have separate books and manage them for tax benefit. 
but when it comes to selling, you may be able to maximize the outcome in four different units, in four different exits, right? Versus one. So yeah, yeah. it's it's a it's yeah. a really interesting point that as entrepreneurs, we maybe don't see you know the forest through the trees, if that's the analogy. And, and yeah. having somebody take a look at your business from the outside and say, hey, this is potentially how you could maximize, I think it's a really interesting thing. Is there anything else that you want to say about you know, having the exit in mind when you go to build? Yes. Because your playbook right yeah. now, that micro pre PE playbook, that is the playbook. You understand you're building a platform, you're going to add on to it, you're going to improve EBITDA and revenue, and that becomes a saleable entity because of scale and operational excellence and yada, yada, right? It, it gets yep. better and better. I, I don't mean to put the words in your mouth. Can you, can you say just a little bit more on that as we tie this up? Yeah, so, so I always like to say for those that are raising capital, otherwise uh, have a plan to sell their business, a data rule first, pitch deck last, or in terms of selling it, data rule first and, and the sale later, right? And what do I mean with that? The earlier you start actually creating your data room and revisiting that on a monthly basis and to make sure again with your investor cap on that everything is tuned and looks nice and you almost look like like a legal counselor for yourself okay what's mm -hmm. wrong with this it does a few things one it keeps you sharp how the business is performing what is leaking and making sure that you actually have an internal governance in the right way and for two reasons, that's very important, because if you don't have your data room in order, you want to raise capital, then the lawyers will come to you and they will literally put on the magnifying glass and looking for things that they can find to downsize your company valuation. That's one. Or if you have a buyer that comes to you, right, they will go to the data room and they make the conclusion, hey, OK, this is not really complete. You don't have the SOPs in place. You don't have this. You don't have that. And then again, you are discounting your exit, right? Or you're discounting actually the, the capital that you're raising. Yep. So I think maybe a, a great thing to say is that just try to be very disciplined towards yourself and know where you want to go in, in the near future and keep yourself accountable for monthly revisiting that, put something in your agenda and make it a team effort as well. Because I can tell you, if you do this right, or you have less dilution at a capital raise, or you make more money uh, at your exit. You know, it's very, it's very yep. simple. Yeah. Sven, that, that's great advice. The data room, having that for the listeners, your data room really is a collection of all of your, the financials of your business, all the documentation, having that in order and updated continuously, not only gives you real discipline in your business and knowing where it is, but when you go to share that information, whether it's a bank loan, a venture capital firm, or a buyer coming to look at your business, you look really professional. Those mm -hmm. that don't have that or have major gaps, just like you said, you're going to be discounted. It doesn't look like as professional a business commanding the highest purchase prices. So great, great advice. I love uh, kind of ending it there. Sven, thank you so much for, for spending this time with us. Truly remarkable career, and you're really right in the middle of it. So we're rooting for you on this next purchase. Hopefully that goes through, and we'll have to have you back when you build up that platform and have your next exit. But thank you again so much for this time. Thanks for having me, Todd. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 
And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.